First, a word about man. Perhaps the title should be a little more crazy and radical than it is, because if I was standing in the lobby of the Holiday Inn about 30 minutes ago, watching CNN while they cleaned our room so we could get in, and after I watched it, I thought, you know, the title of this pre-conference should probably be Preaching God in a Primate-Centered Age. Because here is this demonstration against doing experimental drugs on monkeys, precisely because monkeys have no more right or less right to be treated with dignity than you do. That's a serious change in the seascape of American culture. We hold these truths to be self-evident and so on, that man, this or that. So, preaching in a man-centered age is more serious than we thought it was. It's really man-slash-monkey-centered age, and that makes my sense of urgency all the greater. That's a word on man. A word on preaching. I love to preach. It is my life. And I love to preach in the context of the local church. And I love to preach in the context of worship, corporate worship. I would rather preach in my church than do what I'm doing right now any day of the week. Because I love to preach to a flock of people in worship that build week after week after week upon common visions of who God is. So know that I'm coming to you as utterly and totally biased toward preaching. That's the word on preaching. The word on God is that I love God more than I love preaching. I love God as my creator. I love to contemplate God as my maker. I love to contemplate God as my sustainer, moment by moment. Life and breath and everything comes from him. If my heart keeps beating until the end of this message, it will be a freely given gift of my maker. And I love him for treating me that way and for being that for me. I love him as my savior, that he has sent his son into the world to cover all my sins and work out a perfect righteousness for me and impute it to me through the mere leaning on him alone. I love him as my keeper and the portion that I expect to enjoy with ever increasing gladness. Forever and ever. So this is an easy task for me, frankly. This is very easy. To extol preaching. To preach God. To preach to people who think monkeys are equal to man. This is not a hard thing to do. And I just want to ask now that uh, God would come and put his anointing on this word. So let's go to him and ask him to do it. Oh, Father in heaven. This is a very precious moment. When pastor to pastor, 
we can extol together the glory of God in the preached word to people so adrift that they don't even know who they are, created in the image of God, destined for everlasting damnation or everlasting glory. They don't have a clue. They don't know their right hand from their left. Our calling is so serious. Would you grant now a sense of earnestness, seriousness in this hour? And would you help me, Lord Jesus, help me to say what I ought to say concerning this matter. Help Tom after me and help us to listen. Make us docile to the word, truth. Keep us close to your word. Come now, I pray, and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read a text, and if you want to turn there with me in your Bibles, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, to chapter 4, verse 5. My topic to begin is the place of preaching or preaching this great God in the context of worship, corporate worship. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come. They will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth. And will turn aside to myths. Here's the question I'm asking. Why preaching assumes such a prominent place in corporate worship? Is this just habit and tradition? Or is there a warrant for it biblically and theologically? Is it rooted in scripture? Is it rooted in God? That probably in this pulpit, Sunday by Sunday, I would guess that Almost half, probably, of the service is devoted to the exposition of the Word of God, as it is in my church. I preach about 40 minutes or so every Sunday, following almost as long singing and praying. Why do we do it that way? Why does this task of preaching assume such a prominent role in corporate worship? That's my question. And there are several kinds of answers that you can give. It's really two questions. Let me divide it. It's a question of uh, why is the word so prominent? 
Why is the word of God and then this particular form, question two, this particular way of speaking or handling the word of God called preaching? First, why is the word so prominent in corporate worship? And then why is this way of doing it so prominent? So let's take those one at a time. And these are real basic and real obvious answers. I think I pass over part of the answer, I think, not wanting to tread on any of uh, Tom's territory about Jesus is the word. And go straight to the simple, straightforward question or observation of chapter three, verse 16 here. Second, Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God. That is an amazing statement. You really got to come to terms with this, brothers. You have to come to terms with this. Do you believe that? That uh, this book, my little NASB updated paperback, this, this book is God-breathed. If that is true, If that is true, everything changes in the world. The way you do ministry, what you say in ministry, the way you counsel, the way you do funerals, the way you do weddings, the way you stand by hospital beds, the way you live your life, the way you handle your sexuality, the way you handle your money, the way you handle your community life. Everything changes for the saints and for the pastor especially if it's true That the Bible is a God-breathed book, which I believe that it is. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke, and I believe we could say wrote from God. So my first reason for why the Bible or the Word is prominent in worship is that God breathed this book and therefore when the book is read or studied or explained or heralded, God is speaking if it's done accurately and handled well. And when God is speaking, God is revealed. And when God is revealed, people worship. You cannot worship apart from communing with God through the word. Worship that undertakes to do an end run around the revelation of God through the Bible will become defective worship very quickly. Worship hangs on the centrality of the word. So that's my first reason. Here's the second one. Worship is a response to the work of God, not just the self-revelation through word, but that word describing and doing the work of God. It points to God. It is God's word and gives an insight into his character and personality. It describes works of God. But here's what I'm getting at. The word doesn't just portray God. It performs the work of God. The word depicts. God and does the work of God. It expresses God's will and way and character 
and it effects God's will and His way in the world. We see this all over the Old and the New Testament from creation on. Hebrews 11.3 By faith we know that the worlds were made by the Word of God. So this whole world, that glorious October fall that makes my spine tingle as I look at front campus where I had so many spiritual breakthroughs 30 years ago. God made that front campus. God made those yellow trees. God made the sky and the sun. God did that with a word. He just spoke and it was. And he holds it in being by his word, according to Hebrews chapter 1. But there's a more immediate application to this here in the text that I read to you. He doesn't just do his word. Jesus didn't just do his work by the word, though he did. Fevers were cooled by the word and lepers were cleansed by the word and seas were calmed by the word and the eyes of the blind were opened by the word. But there's something more immediately relevant for us in this text. And let me read it to you in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God might be adequate, fitted out, and equipped for every good Work. So where does the work of God come from? It comes from the fitting power of the word, the equipping power of the word, the transforming power of the word. And if you relate this now to something Jesus said in Matthew five sixteen, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to To your father in heaven, that's worship. Giving glory to God in heaven is worship. And where did it come from? It came from beholding the works of the people of God in the world. And where did the works of the people of God in the world come from? According to verse 17 of 2 Timothy 3, they come from being fitted out by the word of God. So if you want to both preach in the context of worship, as well as beget a worshiping people and a worship-producing people, you stay with the Word. You stay with the Word. If you want your people to be so transformed that they live radical, different lives that make the world see something of God and give Him glory, then according to this logic, moving from 2 Timothy 3.17 to Matthew 5.16, To the glory of God, you stay with the word. You preach the word. You unfold the word and you do it with all your might. Oh, there's so much more evidence we could give. Let me, I'm going to pass over Psalm 1 and Hebrews 4 and and just sum up this first point with this. Worship is about knowing and admiring and savoring God. Through his self-revelation in his word and by his works, which are produced by his word. Worship comes from seeing God 
and savoring God. Seeing and savoring. And therefore, the Word, which is where we see Him. How we come to taste, taste and see, savor it. And therefore, we stay with the Word and make it central. But now that's only part of the answer to why it's crucial for worship. It's crucial for worship, this centrality of the Word, because on the other side of this pulpit, there are people who are not going to see God and savor God apart from the quickening work of the Holy Spirit. There has to be life in the pew. There has to be new birth. There has to be spiritual quickening. The natural man does not receive what passes from this side to that side. It's not welcomed. It's not savored. It's not understood. It's considered foolishness or a stumbling block unless the Holy Spirit does some transforming New birth. And where does that come from? First Peter 1.23 You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. It is the gospel which we preach. Now, we reformed types, and I know that this conference does not presume that everybody that comes is a reformed type, but I am one. We reformed types need to be admonished and exhorted something here. I love to stress the sovereignty of God in the conversion of sinners. And that human beings left to themselves are dead and blind and deaf and hard and rebellious and don't have the natural capacity to lift the little finger of their hand to make a move toward God apart from grace. I love to exalt that. However, one can find himself exalting that Direct, inner, illuminating, life-giving work of the Holy Spirit so much that you can easily neglect that the Holy Spirit has in a most stunning way submitted himself to the Word of God in the performance of this life-giving divine act. So that... He always follows around the Word of God like a shadow and never does His saving work in front of or without the Word. That is, don't believe that any pagan tribe that has never heard the gospel has the Holy Spirit regenerating people in it. Don't believe it. And don't believe that the Holy Spirit just moves willy-nilly throughout the culture of America, saving this one and that one, which maybe the Word will catch up to someday. That isn't the way it happens. The Holy Spirit moves like a shadow behind the Word of God. 
And there is a theological, biblical reason for that. Christ said that the Holy Spirit will be given to glorify me. I will send you a comforter. And his task will be to glorify me. Therefore, the Holy Spirit, in utter allegiance to this mission given him by the Father and the Son, will not quicken a heart to see nothing. He will only quicken hearts to see Christ. Therefore, if Christ is not placarded, the Holy Spirit will not open the eyes of the blind. He is utterly devoted to the glory of the Son. And therefore, when we preach the Son, the Holy Spirit comes and says, that is what I want people to see. I will open their eyes to it. And therefore, since there has to be life in the pew for there to be worship in the sanctuary, there has to be the Word in order for the Holy Spirit to move on the people to reveal the Word. There's a profound reason for why the Spirit, being fully God and very God, will not move on His own in regenerating people without the Word declaring the glory of the Son. So preach the Word in the center of Worship. Now, here's our second question. The first question was why the word is central. And the second question is why preaching is central. Why preaching? You could do it a lot of other ways. Put an overhead here and teach and take questions. You have to preach for 30 minutes. I do that on Wednesday nights for 45 minutes with my people. You could have break up into small groups and discuss the Bible for 30 minutes or so. We do that on Sunday night. Try to push everybody into a small group. Get a lecture and give all kinds of historical backgrounds and uh, deal with critical issues in the New Testament, historical Issues like that. Why this thing called preaching? So that's that's what I want to try to get at now. Let's go back to the text. Drop down into chapter uh, four. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. And of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by the appearing of his kingdom, preach the word. Now, let's just linger over this unparalleled. I don't know what to call it. Asseveration, like an oath, sir. Take the pieces of it. Leading up to this simple command, preach the word, you have an unparalleled introduction. I solemnly charge you, dia marturumai, 
I solemnly, earnestly call something to witness here. So he gets at the earnestness of it all. He wants you to feel the weight of this. Timothy, get ready. I'm going to, I'm going to give a big, long, weighty introduction to this teeny, weeny, massive command because I want you to be ready for it. So I solemnly charge you. And then he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, I am now speaking with God as my witness. He is watching what I say, will call me account to what I say. If I misstep here, I will be slapped or crushed or damned or something. And therefore, I tremble at what I'm about to tell you to do. God is watching me. Christ is watching me. Christ is watching you as you read this. Christ is watching you. God is watching you. When you preach the word, God will be attending. Christ will be attending. You never do anything in your life, Timothy, without God watching, attending the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, always there, always near, always assessing, always judging, always sustaining, always working. You are never on your own. Don't think we're far away from him. And, as if that were not enough, this Christ who is always attending, what I say and what you say, is the judge of the living and the dead. Why say that? Why say that? Just before you say, preach the word. Because you, Timothy... And I, Paul, are going to die. And we're going to be judged. And Timothy, perhaps even more significant than that, when you preach, you will be preaching to people who will die. And if they're alive, when the judge comes, he'll judge them as the living. And if they die, he'll judge them as the dead. But they're all going to be judged by this attending Christ. And therefore, he's watching what you say to them. He's going to hold you accountable by what you say to them as to how he will judge them. I say to my people very often at certain points, at the end of the sermon or in the middle, I have now dispensed myself as well as I can over this gospel truth. My hands are clean from your blood. You will be asked, unbeliever, On the judgment day, do you remember October, whatever last Sunday was, when Pastor John Piper preached? You were there. You heard him. Why didn't you believe? I was speaking. Brothers, when we speak the word of God, we speak to those who will be judged. And the judge will remind them of what they heard in our assemblies and hold them accountable for whether they believed or not. And then, as if that were not enough, before I tell you to preach the word, I remind you that the one who's coming to judge the living and the dead comes and charges us by his appearing and his kingdom. It's a very strange accusative there. Just kind of dangles out there in the Greek sentence. 
with reference to his appearing, with reference to his kingdom. He's going to come. He's going to come. And when he comes, he's going to vindicate himself as king. Oh, man, that's going to be very encouraging for every preacher who realizes that no matter what people say, this Lord that he is heralding is going to appear and establish his kingdom. And every naysayer will be put in his place. And you, obscure, criticized, laughed at, low-paid, faithful servant, will be vindicated. So preach the word, he says. Preach it. Now, what I see here is an answer to a question that I've had. I've asked myself, all right, if I do a little word study of preaching, words like Kiruso, Angelo, Katangelo, um, Euangelizomai. If I do these word studies in the New Testament to find out if there's a prominent role of preaching, what I find out is that almost everywhere those words are used for evangelistic preaching. In the street, on the hill. And so I want to know whether there's a New Testament warrant for preaching in the assembly. And here we have something, I think, significant. Uh, Prove, see this in verse 2, rebuke, exhort, patient, instruction. The context here looks not like evangelism. It doesn't look like evangelism. I don't think it is. I think he's telling Timothy to be faithful in preaching to his people. Reprove them and rebuke them and exhort them and be patient with them and instruct them. So at least we have a pointer here that preaching is in the context of community life as he writes to Timothy. So my first answer to why we preach in worship is that the Bible says to do it. Preach the word. Here's my second answer. There is a historical warrant for it traced from Ezra through the synagogue into the early church. And let me just hit those high points for you. Let me read for you Nehemiah 8, 6-8. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, this is a worship setting. Hands lifted, faces bowed. Amen, amen. They're worshiping. The Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So there you have, I think, in Nugget, a model for what comes into the synagogue and then came into the early church and has been practiced almost without exception for the whole history of the Christian church. You have a worship setting. You have a book 
the word of God. You have appointed, anointed people, Levites in this case. They are helping the people understand. They are giving the sense. And the people are saying, Amen, Amen. And lifting their hands and falling on their face and worshiping the Lord. May it happen in our assemblies. So you come into the New Testament now and here you find Jesus going into the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. Verse 16, remember, in Nazareth, they give him a book, a scroll, with an appointed text, providential. Today, he said after reading this Isaiah text, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he begins to make some very radical application that almost gets him thrown off a cliff. So I think you have it in Ezra's experience. You have the synagogue there and Jesus complying with that pattern. And then you come into the book of Acts and you find it several times. For example, in Acts 13, 14, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue, Paul, Barnabas. They went into a synagogue and sat down after the reading of the law and the prophets the synagogue officials sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And for the next 20 verses, he preaches and gives the word of exhortation from Old Testament Scripture. There's an interesting uh, verse in Acts 15.21 at the Jerusalem Council, where James is speaking, settling this big issue about circumcision. And, and he says something almost in passing as they get ready to send the letter out. He says, I go and present it there because Moses it has those who preach him in the synagogue every Sabbath. Kerusantos. Moses is heralded in the synagogue week in and week out. That's the word used for synagogue preaching. And that's what the early church walked into. That's what the apostles walked into. And you can imagine as little churches were formed by some notable women and some men coming out of a synagogue and forming a little assembly, what are they going to do? They're going to do something like that. So another reason besides the fact that we're commanded to preach in the context of worship, 2 Timothy 4, 2, the pattern of history suggests that this is what we should do. Now there's one last main argument that I have. And for me, this is the most basic. As I have any kind of self-questioning about whether my calling is appropriate in devoting so much of my energy and so much of my life to biblical exposition called preaching on Sunday morning. It's a theological reason that holds me fast. And I'm going to quote Jonathan Edwards here, who has taught me these things more powerfully than anyone else. This is a quote from one of his miscellanies namely number 448. And I'll just tell you, so that you'll listen carefully, that these three sentences 
are as foundational to my theology as anything anybody outside the Bible has ever written. Quote, God glorifies Himself toward the creature in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. Two, in communicating Himself to their hearts in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which He makes of Himself. God is glorified not only in His glories being seen, but by His glory being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. End quote. Now, what that text does from Edwards is show that owing to the very nature of God as one who is knowable and enjoyable. The very nature of God as knowable with the mind and enjoyable with the heart demands that worship be shaped in those two ways. There must be in worship a seeing of God for who He really is through the mind and the exercise of the understanding. And if worship is to be worship, there must be a savoring, a tasting, an enjoying of God with the heart. You separate these, you do not have biblical worship. You have either emotionalism or intellectualism. The ism on the end of those two words means intellect minus the balancing enjoyment of God or emotion minus the ground of the emotion in the truth of God. If you try to separate those two, and churches are erring on these two sides all the time, and our great calling is to see that our church does not do that. Many churches are way too intellectualistic in the, in the Reformed community. Scared to death of emotion. Suspecting John Piper. Whoa! Charismatic! Why? And many charismatics have simply lost their heads. They have lost their heads. It's a a very sad thing when a church loses its head or loses its heart. Sad thing. Over and over the Bible calls us, think on these things. Consider Christ. Meditate on the law of the Lord. Remember His mighty works of old. And just as often and probably more often, rejoice, fear, mourn, delight, hope, be glad. Rejoice and come with singing into His presence. Now, what's that got to do with preaching? 
every day. Because my definition of preaching is this. It is the one form of speech designed by God to perform both acts of glorifying God in one moment. Namely, the exposition of the truth of God that he might be seen for who he really is and the exaltation over the truth of God so that both the preacher and the people might be caught up in appropriate emotional responses to it. Therefore, preaching, in my definition, is expository exaltation. Not exposition without exaltation and not exaltation without exposition. My job as I stand in the pulpit is to make sure that I speak understandable, mind-enlightening, Bible-saturated truth so that my people grow in a coherent view of biblical doctrine and that I do it in a way that they can see it sets me on fire and changes the way I parent, changes the way I love Noel, changes the way I love food or not, changes the way I handle my money, changes the way I delight or not in all this beautiful creation, that it is the center of my heart and my being and cultivates that and then build a worship service that supports that, which means it is going to be vital and vibrant and emotional and textually orthodox and biblically saturated. Mm. The word in 2 Timothy 4.2 is when it says preach the word, the word is keruxon. The word isn't didoxon. The word is keruxon. That word keruso means herald, announce. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The king has a word for us this morning. He is God and there is no other. He is the Savior. He has declared an amnesty for all those who will lay down their arms of rebellion, sign their names to the amnesty, receive the righteousness He's provided in His Son, yield up themselves to the living God, and be reckoned righteous by Him. He has an announcement to make. Preaching that just explains a word tells a story, explains a word, tells a story, creates a whole different atmosphere than hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. Now listen, you might be sitting there thinking, oh, this guy preaches to, you know, 1,000 or 1,500 people or whatever. And you do that when you're standing in a pulpit like this, in a big room like this. And I preach to 50 people or 30. It's not the same. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. The reason is this, it's right off my front burner. In my church, there are people with allergies that are so severe that we have tried now for years to have a scent-free service, a fragrance-free service for them in the first hour, and uh, that's bucking a trend, but I get real mean with my 
fragrance-wearing people in the first service and say, you don't belong here. However, some of them are still so ill that they uh, we've made a room downstairs for them now and put a TV down there with closed circuit and say, this room must be fragrance-free, and that doesn't work. So uh, I went to, to speak to them at their home. They asked me, we're going to have a Sunday night worship service, so on the fourth one, they asked me to come. There were 12 people there. And I sat, like Jesus, to preach. Jesus read the text and sat down to preach. That's a good exercise sometimes. I do admit I sat on the edge of the chair. (laughs) And I didn't cross my legs. And I did bounce from time to time. But I loved it. I know you can preach to 12 people. You don't shout as loud as I just did right then. Of course you don't. But there is a measured... Have you ever heard Alexander Scourby read the Bible? Raise your hand if you ever heard the Bible read. That man, with probably a decibel range of just a very small range, can communicate the shouting of the Israelites or the whispering of God. And he just varies a little bit because you can do things with your voice that communicates passion without doing it the way I'm doing it right now, which would be wholly inappropriate in a room of 12 people. But there's a way to do it with passion. And it is preaching. It is a combination of clear-headed exposition with passionate love for the God and the truth that you are expositing. And so... I close now by just reminding us of what worship is, who God is, and uh, plead with you to pick up worship as the central work of your community and preaching as the central work of worship. God is gloriously understandable in measure through a glass darkly. And God is gloriously enjoyable with the heart, and we are commanded more often to enjoy Him than to understand Him. And therefore, worship, which is to give glory to God, Edward says, must both see Him and savor Him. And preaching is a kind of communication that embodies that, I believe, better than any other. Father in heaven, we want to see you in this conference. Your excellency, your central reality in a world like ours. We want to see you. So draw near now, I pray. And show yourself in these days that we might be refreshed with a fresh glimpse of your glory in our own soul. And stir us up to herald the word of God in Jesus' name. Amen.